Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Remotely Effective, the show about working from home and distributed teams. In this episode, I am joined by Mary Ann Snow, where we talk about the rise of distributed teams in the early 2000s, some of the major shifts that have happened on the technology side since then, and the recent impacts of distributed work in the health and education sectors. And with that, let's get started. Marianne, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to be here, Thomas. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Well, I'm really excited about this as well. And you are someone who has a lot of experience uh, consulting with and researching uh, remote work and distributed teams. But before we we dive into all your ventures there, can you just give uh, the listeners some backgrounds on uh, how you got into remote work and your transition from that point to actually uh, consulting with distributed teams on how to improve their processes. Sure. So I have probably the least linear career path of any um, uh, human being. And and while I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this, because certainly we we dabble in lots of different things in our careers, but um, uh, I uh, started out as an education and an English major in, in school and, and thought that my path was going to be more academic, more uh, related to working with folks in a, in a school setting. And I found that I loved business so much because as, an, as somebody who is involved with education, I, of course, was uh, always in a situation where a lot of times educators are are doing additional work and to supplement their income. And I discovered that I really, really, really loved business. And so um, I learned that you can can really focus on organizational development, behavioral um, uh, um, topics, learning different types of learning and development topics. And so I really built my career with the two things that I have a lot of passion for, which is the the business side of things and also the learning and communication side of things. And um, because I worked with progressively larger organizations uh, that had distributed teams, if you're going to work in an organizational development or a learning development space, then you're increasingly, as you get into larger environments, trying to figure out how you convey information to people over distance using technology and doing it as efficiently and effectively as possible. And the fact that that um, the technology has, it's been such a technology re- revolution in my career path. I have had the privilege of of working in environments that allowed me to be able to take advantage of the latest technology and really think about how to enable distance collaboration, distance communication, distance um, uh, teamwork, and also distance leadership in these environments. And that's sort of where I how I got to today. Wow. Wow. So what do you feel like, uh, if you could look back on one big mark in your career that's really, let's say, set a milestone 
for really being able to build out distributed teams at scale effectively. What would you say that that time period or uh, invention of a technology was? And I, I'm uh, I'm going to say po- post internet, obviously. Like, but what's interesting is if you look back at even into the mid and early '90s when when email was very standard in businesses, people still worked and even to this day still working for very conventional office spaces and their communications really mirror in many ways uh, the same that they did uh, prior to a lot of these digital communication formats being introduced. Is there any any milestone that you can look to that really uh, you, you feel like sped up the effectiveness of being able to build out distributed teams in this way? I think um, uh, the early um, 2000s, because at that point in time, I was working in uh, international environments where IT had had gone through an offshoring process. People were really kind of it was pre cloud applications, but but you were suddenly in a circumstance where global environments where you're working with teams of folks who are literally on multiple contents uh, continents are are in a in a um, were on the rise. And so I was working in an international financial service company and I was charged with um, two things. One of the things that I was charged with is, okay, you have a lean team um, yourself. We've given you uh, a, um, a uh, substantial budget to create an efficient solution for delivering different types of professional development content to 28,000 people in 32 countries uh, for 11 lines of business in a highly regulated business. And and suddenly you're sitting there saying, geez, I've never really thought of myself as a distributed team, but you've been handed an assignment where you now have to figure out how to create a technical infrastructure and then an operational infrastructure to be able to support something that is going to span the globe. And um, through a lot of research, working very early on with companies like Microsoft that were in early stage development with, with platforms like SharePoint, with um, uh, different types of um, uh, infrastructure tools that allowed us to be able to have um, shared collaboration spaces that brought people together so that they could not only share content, but they could also share, they could share um, information, they could share communications that was really kind of going above and beyond email. And I think that was, was really kind of a turning point and after we launched a global, my team and I launched a global learning university, which accomplished those goals and allowed for very consistent professional development content to be delivered to those 28,000 folks in 32 countries al- across all those, those barriers, both technical as well as just regulatory barriers. It sort of opened up the next conversation, which is how do you create a, 
technical infrastructure and also an operational infrastructure to enable distance collaboration amongst that group and do it in a way that it not only includes your 28,000 folks inside your your technical infrastructure, your firewall per se, but also allows for collaboration outside the firewall for um, different types of uh, client integrations and and different types of of um, vendor partnerships and these sorts of things. That was a watershed moment because at that particular moment, I knew things were changing big, and I knew that the the world had gotten a lot smaller. And that was right. Um, I finished that work in 2008 because uh, the economy had changed. And so um, the organization I was working with had started to defund a lot of the cutting edge projects that we were doing for obvious reasons. They were more concerned with keeping the lights on. So if it wasn't immediately generating revenue, then um, they were less interested in it. But but it led me to to make a huge career pivot because I made a choice to take a package. I made a choice to go out on my own. I made a choice to really start studying what was happening in those um, uh, uh, technical environments right at the moment where Facebook wasn't really Facebook yet. LinkedIn was was marginal at best. Twitter had was barely on the horizon, and I uh, was at the front lines of thinking about how you utilize those uh, technology tools in completely different, very cost-effective ways, and really kind of took off from there. And is that when you started uh, your company, Sophia? I actually started my um, consulting practice as a as I was um, uh, a an independent consulting and consultant who was focused on digital strategy at that particular moment in time. And I was a professor. I was teaching at universities in uh, the Northeast here, Bentley University and also Suffolk University. And, and in those environments, I was, I was doing the research and, and, um, really evolving my thinking about what does it mean to be part of a dispersed organization? Can you actually run a virtual company and not be a sales organization per se? Can you do it and not have to be a road warrior per se? Um, and that's not to say that that you would never um, have face-to-face interactions, but how do you bring people together? How do folks interact in those um, circumstances? And the reason I focused on digital at that point, Thomas, was because you know um, the evolution of remote work and dispersed teams was not top of mind for folks, but digital strategy was top of mind. So I uh, worked as a digital strategy consultant until 2015, from 2009 till 2015. And in 2015, I had watched the evolution of what was happening. Really, I really wanted to be back in the corporate conversation about how people were structuring new workplace environments and new ways of of interacting given all the new technologies. So in 2015, I launched Sophia because organizations were were ready to have those conversations. And it's been a, a, a great 
um, opportunity to really be part of the evolution of the workplace changes that have been happening. It's been really fun. I have to tell you, I'm, I feel really blessed. Yes, uh, you, you definitely, I'll say, at least from my perspective, bring a really unique uh, vision to uh, this space because you have more of a, a background as an as an academic, um, you don't come from a, a computer science background as as many people in in you know those advocating for and pushing for remote work um, really have a strong you know, computer science or technology background, whether they studied it in university or they they fell into it some way, um, because those career paths fall very naturally into. Um, working well in remote work, so it's it's definitely interesting to hear someone as yourself uh, talk about advocating uh, for this type of work. What is it like for you coming into a, a team that, in some cases, though I, I'm sure it's not in every case, but in some cases, maybe is more uh, technology focused? Um, I, I speak. Um, uh, as myself, who's who's a developer by day, a lot of times we can we can overcomplicate things, or we can want to just like fix fix a communication problem with just introducing a new tool or something like that. I don't know if you've ever, maybe you've never encountered that. But what's it like um, coming in and and uh, uh, meeting with and hearing from people who are many times technology focused and trying to get them to step back and look at the problem to solve rather than just look at, uh, at the tool to solve it, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. And for me, it's the perfect marriage because um, I, I'm a geek at heart. And while um, coding um, is not my um, a specific area of expertise, you can't exist in these environments without having lots of conversations with with um, colleagues who are creating the technical infrastructure that allows this stuff to exist. But um, tools are great, but if you can't drive adoption, if you don't consider the human beings who have to operate in these infrastructures, then um, then the tool can fail. And so um, marginal tools can be highly successful if the organization has the operating framework to be able to not only function in these environments from a business perspective, from a collaboration perspective, from a an interactive, um, you know, people to people perspective. So I found that, that it is a, a really uh, nice intersect because you have the people who have to work the systems, you have the technologists who build the systems, you have the change management aspects that are required in order to drive adoption and also teach the skills that are so fundamental because. Uh, they're different. The skills that you need in these environments are just different. And so uh, in a lot of ways, Thomas, I feel um, like a kid in a candy store because I get to learn the technology. I get to to understand the technical dynamics, the technical infrastructure without necessarily, um, you know, whether we're talking about Drupal, whether we're talking about, you know, H. 
HTML5, whether we're talking about whatever, you know, the actual um, languages um, uh, that we're using to translate things from bits and bytes to uh, a usable entity. But um, how do we also bring that, um, the UX, right? We, you've got to have the user experience. You've got to have the applicability to um business environments, because if you don't have the applicability and people are finding um, the tool to be a barrier to uh, great work as opposed to an enabler of great work, then the technology eventually will um, run into problems. So I think there's room for, for all of us. And I actually think we need all of us in this conversation because there's a people dynamic, a people element the change management uh, element in terms of um, helping people to make that behavioral transition, as well as um, the the technical element. And so I get to play in the intersect and the intersect is really, really fun. Yes, that's, uh, that is definitely true that we need all these different uh, ideas and voices and perspectives and backgrounds to come together to really make effective solutions that are going to solve the problems at hand um, in our businesses, for sure. I mean, we can't just be one-sided in, in how we, we look at things and, and how we approach stuff. Um, let's say you're, you're consulting with a business and it comes up that they're having a communication problem that they feel like maybe they need to introduce a new tool or write a custom tool to help solve. Do you have any type of uh, checklist or or process that you like to run through with organizations you're consulting with um, to make sure that there is proper buy-in from all the parties that actually need to use it so that the tool doesn't get built or the new process gets implemented and a, a section of the team or uh, a part of the organization doesn't actually end up using the thing and it ends up not being effective. How, how do you like to approach that uh, with people that you work with? So we've got a pretty simple four-step process and, and, uh, you know, call me a simple girl. I don't like to overcomplicate things. And I like to approach things from a, a logical, a practical and a, and a, an end, um, use perspective. So, um, you know, I, we always start out with every conversation with our clients saying, what do you want as an end goal? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? And if they can't articulate that, then the first thing that we do with folks is we we um, uh, give them broad-based options that are possible in relation to what they can tell us. So we help them to strategically kind of formulate their end goals. And if um, uh, they are struggling with it, we help them to really kind of um, um, identify the context, you know, that they want to live in and some of the business basics, who's your, who's your um, client, who's going to be the end user for this product, what do you want it to do? So some of the things that are pretty much standard uh, scope of work questions, right? But at the same time, we're putting it in a larger business question, which is, you know, who are you as an organization? Why do you exist? What um, uh, service products, um, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, what's your, your 
business objectives? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? What are your revenue streams? And and we're really going through that that process of of understanding what an organization is trying to do. Once we've established those pieces, then everything gets looked at through that lens. And so as we're working with with a, a client and we're saying to them, now that we've established that you know, where do you want your company to be in, you know, three to five years or, or what do you want to be when you grow up or depending on if we're working with a startup or whatever. And, and, um, and then take that piece of it and start to really kind of lay out a plan. Evaluating for technology, you and I both know that, that you've got lots and lots of, um, factors that have to come into play. Are you going to build it? Or are you going to buy it? If you're going to buy it, do you want an out-of-the-box version? Do you want to customize it? Um, uh, and what's your budget? And what's your time frame? And how long do you think this tool um, is going to be in place? And what's the, the user um, base? And then what kind of environment is it going to have to live in? And who has to access it? And and um, what's the business um, uh, goals it needs to accomplish? And so I want to always um, really kind of put it in the context of what are we trying to do with this? Um, what's your budget? What's your time frame? All of that sort of stuff. So that as you're um, going through this process with a client, you're constantly asking those questions in a context. You're, you're asking those questions against end objectives. Because if you start there and you're really kind of thinking about all of the variables, and you can't plan for all of them. It's just not possible. But you got to start with some sort of a contextual framework because if you don't do that, the likelihood that, that you're going to be swayed by whether it's a great salesperson who's going to come in or the shiny new thing that's going to come in or people's um, technology preferences that could be left over from other environments that they've worked in or things that they're just wedded to because they're familiar with them, but maybe they're not necessarily going to be the best technical solution for for the longer term and it's not going to be the, the best spend. Um, for that organization, those things are are all going to be part of the calculus, and so the, that's how the conversation goes, and we kind of take it from there. Wow, definitely sounds like you have a very thought out and refined process for sure, and a, a lot of a lot of good a lot of good gems in in what you just said. Uh, segwaying into uh, another side of uh, your business operations um kind of uh, kind of stepping back from the uh, processes that you go through with individual clients that you work with talk a little bit about uh the work that you do with uh, your company remote nation yeah, and um, we actually have three parts of the business, and we can talk about all three of those. And Sophia is our, you know, B two B business to business organization that works to help operationalize remote work and and optimize productivity and dispersed teams. Uh, but Remote Nation is our B two C 
Uh, and what I mean by that is business to consumer as, as a team of people who have not only engaged in remote work or um, dispersed team um, collaboration. And we've done this for a very, very, very long time, both before we started um, Sophia and leading up to the work that we do now, we noticed that there are different types of products that um, are well suited for this particular environment. For example, I'll give you a very specific example. We um, were very, very frustrated because we were doing video conferencing and this was post uh, electronic backdrop um, uh, and we were a small startup. We wanted to look professional and we wanted a professional backdrop that would not only give us um, some privacy in temporary um, you know, transitional workspaces, but we also wanted something that would give us a professional backdrop. So we created a product called Modal. It's a mobile tile system that's made out of recyclable materials. It's very lightweight. It's got a, a cute little carry case. It's only 18 pounds total. It's a uh, uh, a series of tiles that go together like Legos provide a professional backdrop. And in Corona times, it's also providing social distancing, very, very um, cost-effective um, temporary privacy walls, but also the professional backdrop for folks that, you know, in the technical environment are feeling a little uncomfortable with some of those electronic backdrops that sometimes can can cut your head off a little bit or give you kind of a, a weird look, um, a less um, uh, professional look. And so modal is um, something that we built. Uh, it's something that we have a patent on and um, we're building out other products like that that are quite specific to the remote work environment. And then we also have the Remote Nation Institute, which is our research, our learning, and our um, advocacy uh, group that really kind of focuses on what does the workplace of tomorrow look like? Um, you know, how do we look at the the, the changing ways that people work, uh, changing ways that, that organizations are collaborating? And how can we do things like really understand what it's like from a human perspective to function in these environments? So say, for example, um, we've just gone through one of the most unprecedented human um, uh, global experiences we could possibly go through with the pandemic workplace shutdowns. And we're conducting a, a global pandemic work from home survey right now. We have over 700 responses to date. And we're just collecting data on what is the combined human experience that we've all lived through in this pandemic work shutdown. And what are um, some of the really um, universal truths that have popped out of this that we can use to help our organizations in the future really kind of think about um, the efficacy of remote work and how they translate that into their companies in the future for better business resilience. So, so we're trying to do all of those things. And, and part of that's just because we're really passionate about um, the business benefits of, of this type of working. 
Yes, yes. And, and let's dive into some of the, the remote nation institute re- related things now. I'm curious with all of uh, your, your following and, and not just following the, the greater landscape of all the conversations going on around remote work, but also with your individual working with um, organizations and people, uh, what has been your biggest surprise in relation to this massive workplace shift that we saw over the last, uh, let's say, three and a half months, roughly? Like, what's but what's been the thing that, um, if you had known about it up front? You would not have guessed it would have happened, or uh, it it would have taken taken place. Like, what's the thing that really stands out to you as your biggest surprise in this this massive uh, transition that that was basically overnight for for many people? I think probably the biggest thing, Thomas, was um, uh, just the the ease of the transition, and I think you know, um, obviously, we've been advocating for remote work and dispersed teamwork as a, an, an, an efficacious uh, business strategy for a long time. It gives you a lot of um, uh, positives. And I'm not saying that it's perfect or it's th- that it's the only solution because I think that there are time periods where um, you're going to have to deliver um, a service or uh, a product offering in a more face-to-face solution. It's just, you know, that's never going to change for, for some things. We do a lot of work with the healthcare industry, for example. Um, and um, there are time periods where there has to be some face-to-face interaction. But using that example of the healthcare field, what um, uh, really was fascinating to watch and it was less of a surprise than just sort of a fascination to, of seeing the um, mm-hmm. evolution, the fast evolution of um, uh, an industry. Healthcare industry in general was highly skeptical. Telework would never, would never um, be a solution. It's not uh, a good thing. It's one thing. I mean, telework was uh, telehealth was developed by NASA, and it was developed specifically because if you're on a spaceship. Um, you're not going to the doctor's office. And so there had to be some mechanism to be able to deal with folks who were um, in environments that that were not going to allow for face-to-face interaction. Um, uh, Antarctica, if you're in Antarctica and you're uh, in the winter, overwinter, then telehealth is your only option. So um, what was interesting for us is over this like 12 to 14 weeks, we worked with physicians organizations, with hospital systems, with uh, a lot of healthcare providers, both um, inpatient at hospitals and outpatient um, in doctor's offices. And we saw an almost immediate evolution because of the extreme circumstances that um, we were faced with. Because if you can't get people to a doctor's office or you can't get people um, to a hospital um, for relatively routine stuff, but they still need to, you still want to keep in contact with them. You still need that revenue source. Um, uh, What are your alternatives? And suddenly you had people who were saying telehealth is the only option. 
And this is particularly interesting because you have a whole ecosystem. Part of the reason that the medical community was um, opposed to it was it was not um, reimbursed by insurance. But you had the insurance companies who got on board. You had had regulatory and compliance agencies that got on board. You had the actual service providers with the healthcare system itself that got on on board. And it was fascinating to watch because um, I literally worked with one major healthcare system here in Rhode Island that um, that um, pivoted to to telehealth in less than three weeks. Uh, and um, if you had told me that that was going to happen in that time frame, I would have, from a change management point of view, and as somebody who has a lot of familiarity with the personalities and just the organizational structures, I would have said it would have taken a cataclysmic event. And lo and behold, we have a cataclysmic <laughs> event, and they shifted. So Yes. Yes, and I had not even even considered the the regulatory and um, insurance stuff related to this. I, I had processed some of the uh, the amount of work it must have taken to shift these companies um, to doing um, you know uh, telehealth related things. You know, I uh, within a couple weeks or or something. You know, I I. Got emails from different healthcare providers that I had, you know, accounts with through their whatever portals that they have that I had um, uh, history with in the past, saying, you know, we're we're shifting to providing, you know, video uh, video related uh, check ins and that that sort of thing. And I, I thought about what it must have taken to shift that, but I had not considered the the regulatory and insurance aspect of it. So that's that's definitely interesting to hear that they were actually able to pull off changes on that front as well. And it'll be interesting to see what this does to impact the the long term availability of these types of services to uh, individuals, not only that maybe are, are seeing medical providers in their own community, but also maybe would like to have a visit with a specialist who's well beyond a region that we they would have normally been able to to travel to. It's definitely definitely opens up lots of interesting doors. I think. Oh, totally. And I think the other thing that's fascinating about this is how fast there's a couple of things, right? You have the technical infrastructure. And so while um, anybody with access to a phone can start telehealth visits um, via phone and the insurance companies and the the um, regulatory bodies, the compliance bodies have, have allowed um, that as an option for the moment, but that may change. But um, you also have electronic medical record systems that had telehealth components that just had never been fired up before. For example, there's a, there is a, um, uh, a, an EMR system called ECW. Um, and uh, ECW uh, was instrumental in allowing one of the big physicians groups that we work with in um, making that transition and being, off, being able to offer their folks some video options that's tied to an electronic medical record system 
So it is not only compliant, but it is, you know, you've got a record, it can go directly into a patient file. So, so it's really an interesting ecosystem, right? And um, so what does telehealth look like in the future? First of all, the genie's out of the bottle. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that, that telehealth is particularly um, uh, cost-effective for folks with chronic conditions like, say, for example, diabetes or um, uh, somebody who has some sort of a chronic health issue or uh, might be um, a cardiac um, concern or various things. So that piece is, is something that will definitely continue and also mental health. There's a lot of evidence, particularly mm -hmm. in the VA world, right? Because if you have returning vets or folks who are in the, the veteran system and maybe they live in a place that doesn't have um, close access to um, a, a VA facility. And yet there's a lot of evidence that folks in these telehealth, both from the chronic care condition and the, and the medical health condition, um, the mental health condition, um, that they are more, um, they disclose more if they're sitting at home as opposed to sitting in a, a cold doctor's office in a, Interesting. in a patient gown, or if they're talking to a mental health care provider and they're in their own space, there's evidence to suggest that that they are a little more apt to disclose things that they wouldn't necessarily do in other environments. So, so it's, it's a really interesting transition that's happening right now. Yes. Yes, it is for sure. It's definitely going to be interesting to see how this impacts things in, in the long run. And, and I, uh, really am, uh, uh, I really like what you said about the benefits uh, or possible, let's say possible benefits. Um, cause you know, we're still early on. So, you know, as you said, uh, I like how you said, you know, it indicates that it could, could, um, provide benefits in these ways, both on the mental health front and then also on the physical health front as well. I had not, uh, I had not considered that. So definitely, definitely interesting to see. And, uh, yeah, t time will tell for sure. For sure. You know, and I think, you know, it's kind of interesting, Thomas, is, um, you know, that's one example, right? One industry. But um, we've worked with, um, we've worked with uh, biopharmaceutical companies. We've worked with uh, different types of technology companies. We've worked with insurance companies. Um, we've worked with uh, retail organizations, with banking, with financial services, um, with uh, federal programs, um, different types of um, government uh, agencies. We had conversations with the CDC, you know, and if you're, if you're dealing with a global pandemic, you've definitely got a dispersed team. If you're in insurance, uh, we have an insurance client that's a national insurance company, and um, they had 4,000 people working nationwide. And they had to um, get those folks um, to be able to work from home in their particular locations, again, in less than three weeks. And so imagine that, you know, um, what's the infrastructure, what's the technical stuff. Now, we were very mm -hmm. fortunate because we'd been talking to them for over a year, which means we had already talked about things like, what are the employee policies? 
Um, what's the technical infrastructure um, that's necessary? How um, are you going to hold people accountable? What are the types of um, changes you need to make to people's job descriptions and and um, uh, different types of just um, logistical stuff? You know, it's like, you know, how are you going to deliver performance reviews if you've got... Um, small groups of, at the time, when we first started having the conversation a year ago, we were talking about remote work on a limited basis. We took all of those conversations, transitioned them, and the organization was able to apply all that learning and uh, just scale it and scale it pretty quickly. So, um, you know, we're seeing it across the board. And um, the other piece of it is obviously internal communications, right? Because um, if you've suddenly gone from being a brick and mortar organization to everybody's working from home, how do you keep people informed? Um, the internal um, communication structures within those organizations via technology, because of the technology capabilities that exist right now, really transitioned online. And um, that made a big difference for a lot of organizations that were prepared for that because people remember how they're treated during a crisis. You know, did people keep in touch with them? Did you, um, you know, um, really kind of do things that that um, allowed them to have their anxieties reduced because you you connected with them and talked to them about their personal stuff. You allowed them to, to go into meetings knowing that their child would um, show up on the, on the video camera because <laughs> their, their child's only three and there's no daycare and, and that's just the deal. And your cat's going to walk across your, your keyboard. And so um, what's really been interesting and fun to watch is just the disruption of, this, um, you know, work environment and work norms versus personal environments and personal norms. And, and so people are finally acknowledging that work and life can be integrated in really kind of interesting ways. And you can still be professional and you can still be productive and, and you can still do some really cool stuff. Um, uh, and you still have real challenges because it's not a perfect situation. And so I think those are really interesting. Yes. Yes. Um, so you talked a little bit about the pandemic work from home, uh, survey, uh, just a, a bit ago and some of your motivations behind that. And, uh, for all the listeners out there, I'll be linking to that survey. Um, in the the show notes for all of you all who are remote workers uh, to go and uh, check out and fill out. Um, so you talked about the motivations, but what will you be uh, doing with the information that you uh, collect here? Will you be actually formally publishing it anywhere, or will you be delivering a synopsis in some form through one of your companies? Um, well, I guess it, it's specifically re related to Remote Nation Institute. So will Remote Nation Institute be be publishing that in some way? Or what's your plan there? Yeah, what we're trying to do is, um, this is an unprecedented, um, uh, unique time. And we felt that it, it, it's also a watershed moment for, it, if you ever wanted a proof of concept that remote work and dispersed teams uh, are possible in 
in pretty untraditional and and um, unique ways. We thought this was certainly the um, global proof of concept that it's possible. And we wanted to capture information about people's experiences, not only to translate to our work with organizations, but also to really start crafting um, some of the professional standards for working remotely so that as companies are are thinking about business continuity in the future and they're saying, but how do we, what do we do? How do we do this thing? We could offer them some concrete information about what worked, what didn't work. We could offer them concrete information about how people feel in these environments, how best to engage them in these environments. And we can do that through whether it's a, a um, some type of um, program, certification program, whether it's some type of white paper, whether it's some sort of book or um, uh, books in the future. So we'll be taking all of that information and using it as a, a baseline uh, to what happens next, which we think is really, really important. Because um, one of the things, you know, earlier you asked me, were there any surprises? And I think what, what was really interesting is um, for people who are unfamiliar with remote work, um, I think there were two surprises, which is, um, first of all, they figured out it wasn't as bad as they thought. So one of the early um, stats we're getting out of the survey is um, probably 85% of the people who have been exposed to remote work want to continue remote working in some capacity even if it's on a part-time basis, two or three days at mm. home. Um, uh, and there is a, a whole pile of people who want to do it full-time. They don't want to do the commute. They're not interested in going back into um, uh, an office environment. They found it distracting. And not only that, um, they found that in their work environment, their quality of life was impacted. Probably because, you know, if you... I don't know about, um, uh, you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, the impacts of our day, right? Um, my husband has to drive to Boston. We live in Rhode Island. He has to drive to Boston. It can be an hour and a half one way, um, uh, even if you're going by public transport. So we're talking about three hours out of your day. That is, that is really um, uh, not very productive. And people are saying, you know, my quality of life was appreciably impacted by this, which allowed me to be able to do different things that we didn't anticipate. And I think the other thing that the survey really highlighted was that in many ways, um, executives and bosses kind of over-romanticize the workplace. Well, you know, the only way you can get camaraderie is to get everybody together in the, sa in the same room. So there's this romantic notion that um, you're not going to be able to hold people accountable or they're not going to be productive if you can't see them and they're not going to be engaged. And what, what our data shows is, first of all, if um, you're having good contact with me and you're giving me good information, I can be highly engaged as long as I know that you care about me as a person, that you're really interested in what's happening to me. And um, and if you take away my commute and um, you make sure that the technical stuff works, I have internet connection, I have VPN access or shared file access to my work systems, 
I could be highly productive because I can actually do it on my terms and I can do it with less stress because I don't have to get into a car and commute and do those sorts of things. And so um, those were really kind of interesting takeaways for us. That does sound really interesting, and it'll be uh, it'll be cool to see the re- results in ha- whatever form they end up being published or or produced into to some type of material that we can learn from in some way. And once again, I, I'll be uh, linking to that pandemic work from home survey along with all the other uh, items that we've mentioned in this show down in the show notes. Um, before we we wrap up, Marianne. One question I'd like to hear your thoughts on is uh, something that I've mentioned a number of times in previous episodes is this concept of a remote first company versus a remote friendly company. Remote first meaning a company that prioritizes remote work and it actually encourages it versus a company that maybe will begrudgingly hire someone uh, that is not available to come into the office or maybe begrudgingly lets employees work from home here or there on occasion. Uh, But what in your mind are some real bullet points that distinguish a remote first company from just a remote friendly company? Yeah. And I think, you know, remote friendly company in that context, Thomas, is kind of a misnomer because it's not very friendly to remote people. You know, um, yes, good point. And so I think that that's probably the first thing that I would say to you is, is just because you let people, um, we've actually worked with organizations where um, I've reviewed um, work from home agreements, and I'll put that in kind of air quotes there, where um, it's essentially the poor um, remote professional is convicted before they've even done anything bad. And, um, you know, where they have to sign a three-page thing saying, this is a privilege. If you violate one thing, you step out of line, you're not available in these circumstances, blah, 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 and all that sort of stuff. And I could also give you um, uh, another um, uh, very specific example. And the other specific example is you've got, um, uh, you know, hybrid situations where you have a few people working from home or you have a few people working remotely, to your point, maybe a top talent and or a specialty, and you had to hire that person, but you never make them feel part of the team. Well, what's going to happen is that person might do the work because they're conscientious and they're a professional, but as soon as somebody offers them something better, they're going to be gone. And I think that that's really important. Remote um, organizations that embrace uh, remote as a viable way of working, they systemically are going to look at their organizations and they're going to create a meaningful place for remote professionals to exist. And I'm talking about you take into account um, different ways that you onboard people. Um, How do you bring them into the team? What do you do to make them feel a part of the team, even though they're not physically present? How do you think about them um, uh, when something happens? How do you um, create performance standards that are set up in such a way that um, they're achievable and um, they're achievable because they're tied to key performance indicators that are related to job descriptions that are less about 
are you visibly present and more about can you deliver the goods in uh, the agreed upon time frame to the specifications and the quality of work that we've indicated. And so how do you set those expectations and, and hold people accountable? And then finally, you know, part of this is it's the systemic thing, right? How do you give people the benefit of the doubt? How do you create that operating framework, which allows them to be able to operate in a way that they are taken seriously, regardless of where they sit? And if there is a misunderstanding or say, for example, they got up from from their computer because they simply had to use the restroom. Or maybe they happen to be on a phone call and you contact them and they don't immediately respond. The default position is, well, they're clearly screwing off. But in, in, in the, the remote friendly environment, that, that organization that actually is truly um, committed to remote work, that there are protocols in place so that if um, people aren't able to answer right away, that there's an agreed upon, you know, um, uh, response time. And um, as long as people get their work done, nobody thinks twice about it. And I think that, that that's the, the difference, right? Do you give people the benefit of the doubt? Do you assume that they're innocent until they prove themselves otherwise? Are you truly more interested in the production and the um executables, what is executed, as opposed to, can I physically see you? Because you and I both know we could put lots of people in, um, uh, we could put lots of people in an office together. And just because they're sitting together doesn't mean they're productive, doesn't mean they're collaborative, doesn't mean they're very nice. And it doesn't mean that they're very respectful to each other. Yeah. I think that's definitely a great, great rundown. Uh, uh, expectations have just got to be changed when you're not in an office from communication to how deliverables work to how you measure uh, an individual contributor's performance all, all across the board. Um, yeah, expectations have got to be shifted. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining me today, uh, Mary Ann. Uh, before we close out the show, where can people find you? People can find us at um, uh, sophia.com. That is S-O-P-H-A-Y-A.com. And our Sophia site will lead you not only to our Remote Nation site, but also the Remote Nation Institute. You can can look us up online, Remote Nation Institute, where we're out there, we're doing cool, good work, and we love, love, love to hear from you. So... Reach us, reach out to us anytime you like. Yes, and I'll have links to uh, that down in the show notes, as I mentioned. Um, thank you all for joining me on this episode of Remotely Effective. Once again, I'm your host, Thomas Lattimore. You can find me on Twitter at tlattimore or thomaslattimore.com. You can find Remotely Effective uh, wherever you get your podcasts. If you have not already subscribed, uh, go ahead and give us a subscribe. Why not? Um, and I will talk to you all next time. 